If you've got your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. We've been studying through this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. And I, I want to begin with some comments and say this. My, my sermon this morning is not about uh, Roe v. Wade. It's not about abortion. It's not a sanctity of life sermon this morning, although uh, I've stood here several Sundays and spoken about that. But I will tell you it's on my mind, and I'm sure that it's on your mind. It's all over social media, and I imagine you will or you already have. You'll find yourself in a conversation about this with someone, and you'll talk about the Supreme Court decision. And you'll find yourself on, in, on an opposite side of, of somebody that you're talking with. And it's very likely someone that you talk with will be somebody, somebody that you love. Maybe a friend or a, a family member. Maybe, maybe somebody that you go to church with. And, and so, I would tell you a couple of things happening. I, th this week, I'm working on, on the, the passage. I'm studying the passage, studying Colossians chapter 3. And I'm struck by something that Paul is doing with the Colossians and, and, and what he's doing uh, with us, really. And he's telling us, uh, among other things in this passage, he's telling us how we are to think about and how we are to live out our Christian life. And he's beginning by telling us how to think about the story of our life. In other words, he's telling us who we are, what, what our story is. And so I'm thinking about that all week, and then I'm, I'm driving home from Georgia. I'm in, I was in Georgia all week, um, driving home with Leslie. We went out to get our son Jay settled in his new place out there. And so Friday morning, we, we left Brunswick, Georgia, and we're driving uh, west. And uh, my brother texted me that the court decision came down. He's a lawyer, and he'd been keeping up with that. And and so, I, you know, we knew it was going to happen. Everybody knew it was going to happen, but it was still stunning to me. And so, I got Colossians 3 on my mind. I've got Roe on my mind. And, and I came across an article that helped me articulate some of the things running through my head. And it's written uh, by a woman named Winfrey Brinsley. And the um, title of it is, Remember Who Overturned Roe? Part of it says this, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. We've waited decades to see those words in print. We, when something so monumental and, and so long sought after comes to fruition, it can be hard to make sense of. We know the facts, the Supreme Court's ruling in the Dobbs case overturned Roe, but how, how do we understand what brought us to this moment? How, how should, when, what should we do now? Some of us will tell the story of Roe being overturned as a story of nine justices and how they voted. Some will tell a story of giving a voice to the voiceless and defending the powerless. Some will tell a story of political strategy and the evangelical vote. Some will tell the story of good triumphing over evil, the, the righting of a wrong. Some will tell the story of a goal accomplished and the dawning of a new era. And all these stories help us sum up Help us understand aspects of, of what has happened, but let's not miss the truth that ultimately 
The story of Roe v. Wade being overturned is a story about God. Then she goes back to Psalm 126 and likens it to how the Israelites tell their story of deliverance. They say amongst the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. say a little more about that in a minute, but I want you to see this morning in Colossians chapter 3, in the first four verses, that Paul is telling us this morning how to understand what it means that, that our story, that the story of our life as believers, that the journey of our life as Christians has been folded into the life of Jesus. Our story, it's His story now. Who we are is what He is. And then Paul, he encourages us. He's going to say, I want you to think about this, and I want you to act on this, and I want you to become so completely overwhelmed by it that it permeates everything about your life that it permeates how you think about everything. And then I want you to live that out. And so I want to be faithful to the passage this morning, and I also want you to be aware that I feel a burden about us as believers because I, well, I'm not on very much social media, thank God. I know some of you are mean and you say nasty things and you get riled up and you get so angry. And oh man, we shouldn't be doing that. So I want us, I want us to be so overwhelmed about the reality that what God has done includes us. And our story's completely changed and, and, and now completely folded in to who Jesus is and that we'd be overwhelmed by that. So look with me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read Colossians 3, the first four verses, and we'll just walk through them. And we'll be timely this morning. If then, he says, if then, or, or maybe better, since then, that's that's. It's what he means there, since this has happened. Since then, or if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, help us this morning. Overwhelm us this morning with the truth 
She revealed to and inspired Paul to write to this church in Colossae. This little church meeting in Philemon's house. This little church that you brought to being through the sharing of the gospel of Erasmus Father, now as Tychicus stands before them and reads these words that you, Father, they come directly from you through Paul. Father, may we hear them as directly to us from you through Paul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, at the end of, of chapter 2, what's happening is Paul, he, there's the, the, the false teachers there, and they've come and they're giving these rules and regulations which, which have no base um, uh, for, their, for their life. And Paul's addressing this. These are, these are false teachers, and they are imposing upon the Colossians certain ways to, to live or certain things that they must do. And so Paul's warning them about observing those things, or at least observing those things for the motives that are ascribed. We don't know all the details, but we simply know that Paul put here, he said, listen, it's the things, when when people say, listen, don't touch that, and don't taste that, and don't handle that. In fact, if you go back to Colossians 2.16, he tells him, he says, listen, let nobody pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon Sabbath. Those are shadows of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. It was this combination of Jewish ideas, pagan ideas, and it's a little, just enough mixture of it to be a heresy, when you, when you start saying, well, listen, you, 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 you got to do this, and you, and you got to do that, and, you, and you, what you eat, um, you know, matters. And, and if you eat the wrong things, you, you'll find yourself on the outs with God. Or if the new moon comes and you don't you know, howl like you're supposed to, or whatever, you're going to be on the outs with God. And Paul says, no, 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 all that stuff's nonsense. That's, that's childish exercises. This, let me tell you what true spirituality means, what, what it means to really be a Christian, what, what it means to have had your life utterly transformed by grace through faith in Christ. What does it mean that you're a new person? And he's going to tell us much more about that next week, but he starts here. This is truly what it means. And it's so important that you know this. You know, you've been raised with Christ, and I've got to start here before I tell you anything else because, because this is all the result of what it means that you are justified. But what it means that you stand right before God. Now, you stand right before God because of what Christ has done. But if you don't understand that, you'll think the rest of this letter is about how you get justified by God. If you don't understand 
that as a believer, you're already justified before God. You'll misunderstand the rest of the letter. You'll think it's about how to get justified before God. So, Paul wants to make clear here that the imperatives, that they're all in these divine passives. These are, you have been raised with Christ. Now, you're going to seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. There's implications of, okay, this is what is true about you. So now this is how you work it out. Pursue the things that are supreme above all other things, is what he's saying. The word seek, to seek the things that are above, it means to, to desire to have or to experience something, strive to find, investigate it, examine. Story of well, history, Spain it led the world in the 15th century, and the, the, the writing, the, the, the phrase that was on the coins of, of Spain in the 15th century it, it, it reflected this sort of arrogance of how they saw themselves in the world. It was a Latin phrase that meant nothing further. Now, once you've reached Spain, you've hit, you've hit the end of your search. What you've been searching for, you have found nothing further. That's what it said. Well, after the new world is discovered shortly after that, you know, Spain's humbled, the powers of be are humbled, and they change the phrase on the coin. The phrase then begins to read, more beyond. But Paul's saying, look, when you become justified, too many Christians come to a place that, oh, nothing further. I've walked the aisle, or I've, I've accepted Jesus, or I went to camp, or I have been baptized. Nothing further. I mean, I've checked that box off my, uh, you know, that, uh, checked that box on my list. And Paul's trying to say, no, no, there's way more beyond that. There's way more. Your life has just begun. Your story has just begun. Remember the moment that I married Leslie? More things happened in that moment than I realized. I mean, it, it was a matter of 10 or 15 minutes in the ceremony. We end by saying, I do. I got to kiss the bride. We walked down the aisle, and honestly, I'll tell you, I remember even sitting in the airport that, that later that evening as we were, we were getting ready to fly. I think, I don't feel all that different. And yet, I was completely different. And now life for me at that point was now about, you know, seeking, finding. The way Paul says it in Philippians, pressing on to take hold of this marriage. Marriage had taken hold of me. Now I had to take hold of marriage. Seeking it out. 
It's like what the psalmist says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the waters, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And the rest of the psalm, the psalmist is preaching to himself this reality, and he ends up by saying, why are you, why are you cast down? Why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? What's go- why all the turmoil inside? The psalmist turns to himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist, despite how he feels, despite the circumstances, despite the enemies pursuing him, seeking the things that are above where Christ is. One writer, well, Tozer calls it the upward gaze of long-range faith. It's not seeking material things, not even the material things of heaven. It's the seeking of majestic things, seeking, and then he's just setting your mind on things above. So, he addresses the will in, our first, in the first one to seek. You do this with your feet, your actions, your life. Then he says, set your mind on the things that are above. It's addressing our, our mind. How, how do we think about things? How, how do we keep giving consideration to, pondering, having a mindset, acknowledging the importance In Matthew chapter 16, find it also in Matthew or Mark chapter 8 where Peter has just made the great confession to Jesus. So who do people say that I am? And, you know, they him and haul around and then Peter, he jumps out and says, well, you're the, you're the Messiah. Jesus is yeah, right, you get it. God gave you the answer, good. And then Jesus turns to tell him, now, so uh, you got that. Good, now you want, now I can tell you, we're, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. That's why I came. And Peter comes up to him and says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. And then Jesus turns to him and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. And then he, his conclusion, you are not setting your mind on the things of God. I mean, That passage helps us. How do we know when we're not setting our mind on the things of God? It's usually when we begin to have that conversation that is very much of a prayer to God that says, you know, I I think you got this all wrong, God. I you you're not listening to me. You're not you're not paying attention to what I need. That's how we know. Then he says, not on the things that are on the earth. What does Paul mean? You know, so there's the saying, I can't remember who famously said it, but you know, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Is that what Paul means? Be heavenly minded. 
Don't care about anything on the earth. I don't think that's what he means. Here's a good summary of it. The command called the Colossians to focus on matters related to the rule of Christ in the world. He's the sovereign ones. He's the sovereign one. So, his concerns should occupy the Christian. Believers' values and loves were to be focused on the rule of Christ and consecrated energies were to be devoted to making that rule a reality on earth. The task of the Colossian church was to call people to Christ and away from earthly things. It was, call, it was to call people to life, true life. In other words, the danger that we face is to cling to an optimism about the things that are on the earth. An optimism that something or somewhere can fulfill the longing that's created in, in you, satisfy the desires of your heart, that where Ecclesiastes says eternity is written on your heart, the optimism that says I can find what is written on my heart in the here and now on the earth. We also battle this optimism inside of ourselves and our flesh and a in our ability to make ourselves okay through ingenuity or hard work or well, just a little bit of luck. Let me give you four things that help you know you are maintaining an optimism in your flesh above seeking the things that are above. When your primary focus, when the thing that you're focused about, the thing that you're aimed at every day is on your responsibility, the primary approach to the Bible as you read God's Word, you come away thinking, okay, well, what am I supposed to be doing for God? Many of us, are driven by the need to prove ourselves spiritually. Maybe it's to prove yourself spiritually to God. Maybe it's to prove yourself spiritually to those around you. Maybe it's to prove yourself spiritually to yourself. If that's the case, trying to prove it, like, no, no, I really am spiritual. I, I, I really am. There's this heaviness that you live with. Listen, I'm going to be, be honest with you. I, I feel that all the time. I wrestle with that. When I get ready to preach or teach, I feel the magnitude of a passage like this. You know, I think, man, I really got to hit home run here. I mean, you didn't come here for a base hit. You didn't come to see me strike out. It's the way I feel. You know, I mean, I've got to give the people something. I really want them to know that I studied hard all week. You know, my temptation, my struggle is to want to prove to you by my preaching my spirituality. But if I just relax, 
And you'll see me sitting over here, you know, before I walk up here. And I'm, sometimes it's me just going, okay, Lord, just let between, between that seat and coming up these stairs and then standing right here, I, I have got to die to myself. You know, the passage is magnificent. I don't, I don't have to speak. Your word, your, your word is majestic and, and magnificent, and, and there's a power in your word. And if I can settle that in my mind, in those steps, and I'll tell you, it, it is so freeing. All the anxiety goes away. I can share with you what I've studied and the things I've thought about. And, and then realize the power of God through His Spirit is going to do His work this morning. Well, if you feel this need to prove yourself spiritually, the other bit of optimism is when, is when your spiritual life is, is driven by a, a list. Um, there's nothing wrong in, in and of itself of a list. I know I say, I say that all the time, and some of you probably work, you, know, you make a list for groceries, and you might hear me say bad things about the list, and you feel like you're sinning. I don't mean that. It would be terrible to go to the grocery store without a list. It's terrible when I do. It's a great tool. It can be a terrible master. If you're success, your spiritual life success depends upon you checking all the things off the list, you've got a problem. Here's another one. When repentance, your, your confession, is really nothing more than a promise to try harder. Here's how that prayer goes. Lord, if you forgive me, I won't do this again. What well, one more chance, Lord, and I'll make it right. Those kinds of prayers speak to a confidence you have in your own flesh. Here's the last one. When your primary response to sin is surprise. The only surprising thing about sin is that we did not do it earlier. Your response, your surprise response to the sin in your life reveals the optimism about your flesh, the optimism about the things of the earth. Paul's very honest about sin. He grieves over it. He hated it. He mourned it. He cried out for deliverance from it. But Paul was never surprised by sin. Look at verse 3. Here's this great hope. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, there's something here, and we'll look at it next week in more detail. It, there's this already and not yet reality. Already you have died, not yet are you fully dead. Because you'll notice in verse 5, if you've got your Bibles, he's going to say, look, verse 3, you've died. Now, verse 5, here's the instruction put to death. You've died. Now, Put to death. You have died. You are hidden. This is the result. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, here's a question. What does it mean that our life is hidden? 
Well, what does it mean that our life is hidden in Christ? What does it mean that our life is hidden in, with Christ in God? Well, think about it this way. Let me give you one biblical illustration, and then let me give you one today illustration. The biblical illustration is if you were reading through the Bible and you got through Genesis and you got through Exodus and you come to the end of Exodus. And the end of Exodus, chapter 40, I'll just read you a little bit of it. It's really quite an astonishing thing uh, that takes place. The Israelites are... Um, have been freed, led out of, the, of slavery by Moses, and they're gathered as a people in the wilderness. And then it says this at the end of, of, of um, Exodus chapter 40, very last verses, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, it says, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. The fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. In other words, here's what Moses is telling you at the end of Exodus. God was in their midst. God was with them. And one of the natural questions of this reality that God was with them is this. Wait a minute. If God's here, how can we also be here? God's holy. He's holy. He's a consuming fire. How, if He's here, can we be here also? How can we as a sinful, finite, broken, prone-to-wander people live in the presence of the holy and majestic and mighty God. Well, that's what it, how Exodus ends. Well, guess what the next book is? Leviticus. It's all about the sacrifices. It answers the question, how do an unholy people live with the holy God, and specifically, chapter 1 begins with the burnt offerings, and the burnt offerings, essentially, where you were to bring uh, um, an, an, the, the animal that was to be sacrificed out of the herd, a male without blemish, you brought the animal to the priest, and what you did was you laid your hands on the animal. And it was symbolic. And what you were saying was, I'm transferring all of my sin. This burnt offering, it's an offering of atonement. I, I'm, I'm transferring all my sin, all my uncleanness. 
I'm putting this on the animal. This animal now stands in my place. So then what the priest did was to kill the animal and to burn it on the altar. And all your sin went to the animal that died, was offered on the altar, and then now you get to go away atoned. And it was all symbolic. And all of it, you realize, once you get to the New Testament, is pointing to Jesus, who John says when he sees him, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Why Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We are hidden in Christ. All that we were was put on him. He died with it. And then Paul says, we died with him. And now we're hid with him. We're we're hidden in, with Christ in God. We're covered by Him. All that we were has now been consumed, enveloped in Christ. Our story is now His story. We're hidden with Him. What does it mean that your life is hidden with Christ? It means you've been set free. You've been set free from the power of indwelling sin. Listen, you're never going to escape temptation. But the frustration or the hopelessness that defines life where sin feels like it's inevitable or it's no longer a choice, you, you now are free from the power of indwelling sin. Not its presence, but it's power. There's a letter Hudson Taylor wrote, an old missionary wrote it to his sister, 1869. My mind's been greatly exercised for the past six or eight months, feeling the need personally and for the mission of more holiness, life, power in our souls. But personal need stood first and was the greatest. I felt the ingratitude, the danger, the sin of not living near to God. I prayed, I agonized, strove, fasted, made resolutions, read the Word of God more diligently, sought more time for meditation and prayer, but all was without effect. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. Each day brought its register of sin and failure, the lack of power. Then came the question, is there no rescue? Must it be thus to the end? I hated myself, I hated my sin, and yet I gained no strength against it. I felt I was a child of God. His spirit in my heart would cry, Abba, Father. But to rise to the privileges of a child, I was utterly powerless. Later, he would write to his sister. In fact, he would 
later write to his sister about Colossians 3, 1 through 4. About the freedom of what it means that his life is hidden with Christ. Christianity its a miraculous story that now includes your life. It's not your best, not your best effort. It's what God is doing as He lives out through you. You're freed from the power of indwelling sin. Listen, you're also free from the consequences of sin, the guilt of sin. Listen, you have an accuser, and he will follow you around. He comes and tells you, reminds you, you are unworthy. But you are free from that. You're hidden in Christ, hidden with Christ in God. Now, listen, I want to come back to where I started. If... if, um, if Roe does anything, the overturning of Roe by the Supreme Court, it will bring a conversation to the surface that has come to the surface several times in the last 50 years, but it has come to the surface with an utter vengeance and bitterness and anger, and that's all around us. And you'll find yourself very feeling very sheepish to say out loud, praise the Lord for the Supreme Court overturning the, the Roe decision. But I'll tell you, there, there are people that find themselves in great pain this weekend. And some of that pain is that this this Roe v. Wade thing. You know, it was, this, it was this grand excuse that, yes, maybe it's something I've done, but it was legal. It was something that, that it's, uh, somebody said was okay for me to do. And there has been this covering that has been stripped away, and I think it is helpful this morning to listen to Russell Moore as he speaks about how being hidden in Christ applies to this. He says, our task as pro-life Christians is not only to advocate for laws that protect unborn children. It's to advocate for women or advocate on behalf of the women walking toward the abortion clinic. And to do this, we have to realize that abortion is not ultimately about arguments. It's not ultimately about having the most persuasive rhetoric. It is often about something more primal, when I've talked to those who worked in abortion clinics, one thing they often tell me is that most of the women who have come into their facilities aren't talking about autonomy or choice. They don't speak of their baby as a blob of tissue. Most of these women understand exactly what is at stake, but they believe they have no other option and no other choice. And some of these women, even some of their doctors or religious, would identify as pro-life in a pew poll. 
Yet when the moment of crisis comes, when the threat of shame and scandal and poverty feel imminent, these women see abortion clinic as their only option. What these women and men are unable to see is the deceitfulness of the enemy. No one is more pro-choice than Satan on the way to an abortion clinic, and no one is more pro-life than Satan on the way out. Promises of freedom and relief are quickly turned into accusations and assaults on the soul. What seemed like only the only way on Friday feels like the unthinkable atrocity on Sunday. And these crushed consciences slip in and out of morning worship, convinced that the preacher's words about forgiveness and mercy and atonement apply to everyone else but them. Listen, that that is being brought to the surface everywhere around us. We must, as believers, be aware of this. He says, if being pro-life means anything, it means having a word not just for those walking toward the abortion clinic, but also those walking out of it. We must have something to say when we see in our churches these women and men whose throbbing consciences are crying out against them. What do we tell them? The first thing we must say is their consciences are set right. Clinically, clinic privacy laws cannot hide their choice from the knowledge of Christ. There is a holy judgment hanging on abortion, and the guilt they feel is real, but it, we cannot stop there. Abortion kills the conscience, yes, but the conscience can be brought to life again. The woman who's had the abortion needs to know that if she's hidden in Christ... God doesn't see her as that woman who had the abortion. He hasn't been subverted from sending her to hell because she found a gospel loophole. In Christ, she's already been to hell, and in the resurrection of Christ, God already told her what he thinks of her. You are my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased. It is not enough for our churches to believe in gospel reconciliation at the judgment seat of Christ. We must live it out in our fellowship halls, our small groups, our Sunday school classes, the church cannot preach that Christ became a curse for us while treating those who repent as still accursed. Abortion kills. It kills a human being, a child made in the image of God, but it also kills the conscience. And Jesus declares, I have come that they may have life. Oh, man, must we be a church that proclaims that. Oh, if you could set aside your anger for grace. Set aside the gloating. Allow humility to take its place. All of creation's being restored since Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave. All that was lost in the fall is in the process of being regained and one day will be regained finally. No more let sin and sorrow grow nor thorn infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow for as far as the curse is found. As a believer, 
Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. United with him. I'll end with this. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, I, I, it may be possible for us to think too much of our own potential glory hereafter, but it's hardly possible for him to think too often and too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw him now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. When he appears in his glory, you will appear with him. You know what your story is? Paul says, this is your story. This is who you are. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure that that's who you are, you can settle that today. That by grace through faith, You'd say, Christ, save me. I am a sinner in need of salvation. You can do that where you sit this morning. Come tell us about it. Come tell me about it if you do that. Father, I pray you'd help us all this morning to be overwhelmed by all that you have done through your son Christ and, Father, the ramifications of what that means about who we are as believers. As Paul prayed this morning, we do give thanks and praise to you for what you have done. Father, I pray as the church, we would be the ambassadors of your grace and mercy. Father, that we would walk out of here setting our mind on things above, seeking the things that are above. Father, draw us to that. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray, and by the power of your Spirit, amen. If you would, would you stand with me?